0: pray that as we uh, seek to understand the Bible, particularly this question of infant baptism, we pray that you would be pleased with our efforts to know you, to study your word. Please be with us. Enlighten our hearts and minds. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so um, I'm going to just jump right into it. It's uh, it's going to be a, 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 an involved, lengthy argument. Um, so the question is, why should we baptize babies when they don't have faith? Um, and I think this disturbs a lot of people when they see uh, babies being baptized because it seems to disconnect faith and baptism. Right? Uh, Obviously babies don't have faith. I once heard an argument for infant baptism in which the person was trying to argue that babies have some sort of tiny incipient faith. That is a uh, a ridiculous argument. Um, And in fact, if you look throughout the uh, uh, New Testament, every time you see someone being baptized, it's a result, a response of their faith. Right? And so the question naturally arises, And the answer is, we don't baptize babies because they don't have faith. We baptize babies, why? We baptize babies because their parents have faith. Okay? So the answer, this is the answer. Well, let me put the word because. Okay? The answer is because their parents have faith. Okay? So if I could sort of put it graphically, the parent's faith counts for the child. That's the answer. I'm going to unpack this answer for the rest of the hour. But that's your basic answer. That's it. It's nothing more complicated than that. Um, So the question people naturally have is, okay, I think I understand your argument. Where do you see this in the Bible? And um, when people say, where do you see this in the Bible? Join
1: us. There's, there's stools over there. Yeah. Thank you.
0: And people say, where do you see this in the Bible? And they're usually looking for a proof text. Okay? They're looking for a proof text. They want to they wanna see a verse where Paul says, and you shall baptize your babies. Is there such a proof text? The answer, of course, is no. Um, And so a lot of people say, well, then that ends the argument. It's over. Infant baptism is unbiblical. And I think this is why almost no one comes to this position naturally, in my opinion. Uh, I originally came to this position myself against infant baptism. It didn't make any sense to me. And in fact, it took me a long time to be persuaded of this argument and to be honest with you, um, I became a Presbyterian, except the one holdout issue was infant baptism for me. I went to seminary, kind of questioning it. And as a good Presbyterian, I submitted. I said, well, there's all these wise people. They must, there must be some good reason. I will just accept it on that. It wasn't until I went through three years of seminary and really thinking and thinking and thinking that I finally got it. So, the argument I'm going to give to you, basically, is to distill three years of thinking, you know? And, and, and in that sense, it's a really hard argument to understand, because the logic behind infant baptism, right? This is very important. It's not a matter of proof texting, it's a, it's a logic, okay? <laughs> and the logic behind infant baptism is, how does the Bible fit together, okay? And there are two parts to the Bible, right? Obviously, there's the Old Testament And there's the New Testament, right? And there's a huge debate. How do these two parts connect or disconnect, or how are they related? And the issue is basically how much continuity, how much discontinuity is there? What I mean is how much of what is in the Old Testament carries on and continues in the New Testament, and how much is there a break? There's some degree of break, there's some degree of continuity, but which one does it favor And the logic of infant baptism is that there is basic continuity. Once you understand this paradigm, this logic, that's how you come to accept infant baptism. So that's so, I'm going to basically try to persuade you of this logic, okay? (laughs) If you don't understand this logic, nothing else makes sense. Everything else just seems like you're doing some sort of, like, tricky, subtle sleight of hand. Because, again, there is no proof text. Okay? It's one of those paradigm arguments. Like, sometimes people say to me, where do you see infant baptism in the Bible? And my answer is, well, you got to read the whole Bible. <laughs> and then you'll get it. Right? So that, that's really the answer. I'm sorry. All right, so... Um, Okay, so let's move on. So uh, where do we see, uh, so oh, so, because the parents have faith, right? We see this principle in the Old Testament. Okay? So we see this in the Old Testament, right? A oh, parents having faith. So the key text, if there's any text, like if someone says, give me one verse, this is the verse, right? Romans 4.11. Uh, let me have Wade read it for us. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Okay, it doesn't seem like very much, right? (laughs) You don't even see the word baptism there. All right, so here it is, right? It says that circumcision is a sign and seal of salvation. (coughs) If you've been in the uh, sacraments class, you know that sign Mm -hmm. and seal is very specific language. It's sacramental language, right? It's a sign it's telling us something. And it's a seal, right? It's impressing on our hearts impressing on our on our whole body, our whole being, that God loves us, that we're saved, right? In fact, Paul specifically puts it, the righteousness that we have in Christ. And notice that he says, circumcision does this. Therefore, circumcision acts as an Old Testament sacrament, right? And so here it is, right? In the Old Testament, you have circumcision, and it acts as, in much the same way as baptism in the New Testament. It's a sign and seal of your salvation, of your righteousness in Christ. And here's the logic. If you look in the Old Testament, as you should know, circumcision was applied to children or babies. And therefore, baptism should also be applied to children and babies. Now, here's the thing: where do you see that verse? You don't see the verse in the Bible. You don't need to, because you have this. Once you have this, this is obviously logically assumed. Does that make sense? All right. So let me let me <laughs> let me try to persuade you. Okay. <laughs> so the question we should ask is this: Let's just stick with circumcision, right? Paul tells us very clearly, circumcision is a sign of your salvation, right? Abraham received it as a sign and seal of the righteousness he had in Christ. He believed the gospel. Abraham believed in Jesus Christ as his savior. He didn't know Jesus Christ specifically, but he knew that he accepted the promise that God gave him, that one day a seed would come, right, who who would die for him. And then God says, okay, because you believe, because you are now my child, Here's this sign. Here's a salvation sign. Now, here's the question. Why is this salvation ap- sign applied to children? Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and um, Isaac. Circumcision was applied to them. And the question is, why did Ishmael and Isaac believe the gospel? In fact, we know for a, for a definite fact, Ishmael later leaves. He, he, he breaks off. He, so he's definitely not a believer, and yet it's applied because Abraham is the parent, and his faith counts for his children, okay? So, um, the immediate objection that people have is, okay, this this parallel doesn't work. So our Baptist friends would say, this parallel doesn't work because circumcision is not like baptism, because circumcision is an ethnic marker, right? Right? You're baptized if you're a Christian, if you believe, but you're circumcised if you're Jewish, as a sign that you're a Jew. It's like an ethnic sign. I, I mean, I don't know, like, what would be the equivalent ethnic sign for, maybe, you know, for Korean, they would be eating kimchi or something, right? You know, you're, the kimchi eating, that that means you're Korean, right? Um, there are several problems with that. Not First and foremost, because Romans 4.11 tells us very specifically circumcision is not an ethnic sign, or a, it could be an ethnic sign, but it is also a salvation sign, right? And I'm going to prove to you, I'm going to try to show you that it's actually not an ethnic sign at all. So Romans 4.11 tells us it's a sign of salvation, but secondly, think about the symbolism of circumcision. So let's talk about circumcision, right? Everyone's favorite topic. So what is circumcision? <laughs> I'm gonna put Ashley on the spot. Awesome. What is circumcision? Can you remove mm-hmm. the foreskin. That's good. You you cut. 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 Cut's important. You cut off the foreskin, right? So let me just draw it out no oh. it out. <laughs> Let me write it out for you. <laughs> I'm not that risque. Okay. So so there's there's foreskin and there's cutting, right? Or what we would call circumcision. Right? Or cutting around, right? So, the foreskin here represents, it's a symbol of sin. And the circumcision, or the cutting off of the foreskin, represents cutting off sin. Removing sin, right? By the way... This should, this should look very familiar to you, because if, we, if you were just at last week's uh, baptism class, remember baptism had the exact same imagery. What is dirt in baptism? Sin, right? And what is the, wash, or what is the, uh, what is the act of baptism? Right, or cleansing sin. So it's the exact same imagery, notice. It, it does the exact same thing, okay? That's the parallel, So, how do we know that? I could give you two dozen texts. But, for the sake of time, let me just give you one. Deuteronomy 10.16. Let me just read it for you. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Now, you should immediately pause and say, Holy smokes, I did not know my heart had foreskin. Right? (laughs) That's a very weird imagery. Because if it is as actually claimed, circumcision is cutting off this little flap of skin. How do you circumcise your heart? Right. It says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And the answer, of course, is circumcision isn't about the physical thing. It's just an outward sign. It's an outward image of what's going on inside your heart, which is that God is removing the sin from you, and you know that because He gives you He gives you the parallel. He says, be no longer stubborn. Don't, don't resist God. Don't fight God. But yield to him. Be attentive to him, right? This is why you hear this imagery, this language in the prophets all the time. You uncircumcised hearts. You, you know, circumcise your hearts. They continually talk about the heart being circumcised. So our Baptist friends will say, circumcision is an ethnic marker. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit the Old Testament language, okay? So let's go on. Second, uh, uh, Colossians chapter 2. Very important passage. Can I have uh, Ashley... Can I have Ashley read it for us?
1: In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead.
0: It's a very dense verse. So let me break it down for you phrase by phrase. Every phrase is important, okay? So in Colossians, Paul is reminding his listeners, his readers, of their salvation in Christ. And he says, remember, right, that in him, in Christ, you were circumcised. Is he talking about a physical circumcision? Is he talking about something that was done to their penises? No. Hannah says no. Why not? Because it wasn't made by hands. Very good. You are attentive to the text. It says it, it was a circumcision made without hands, meaning it wasn't a human physical thing. It was done by God right? Which makes sense because he's talking to both Jews and Gentiles in this Colossian church. So this so Gentile believers who were not circumcised received this circumcision in their salvation. This circumcision made without hands and he defines it further by putting off the body of the flesh. If you're familiar with Pauline language and uh, we don't have the time to go into all of it, but the body of the flesh is Paul's language for sin, right? So putting off, meaning cutting off so he's talking about all the same thing. You were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by our body of flesh. Our sins were cut off from us. It says, by the circumcision of Christ. Now that's really weird. Why well, mention that Jesus was circumcised? Why? What, what does his circumcision have to do with it? Of course, we're not talking about his circumcision that he received as an eight-day-old baby. We're talking about what happened on the cross. Because what happened on the cross... He was cut off from the living. He was cut off uh, from God. And so, uh, 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 the circumcision of Christ is his death on the cross. And then listen, verse 4, he goes on here. He's talking about the same image, right? Don't be confused by the verse number and quotation, like, as if he's switching topics all of a sudden. Having been buried with him in baptism. So first of all, notice that circumcision and baptism are parallel images parallel actions, right? Because he's talking about all the same thing, right? Uh, What is it? We were buried with him in baptism, Mm -hmm. meaning that to be saved is to have our sinful flesh cut off, and it's to be buried with Christ. All this imagery is talking about one and the same thing, and therefore, circumcision and baptism point to the same thing. They're both signs and seals of the gospel. And therefore, Notice that this paradigm, this logic, you see it in circumcision and baptism, right? By the way, the parallel holds true in the other uh, sacrament, which we're going to talk about next week, the Lord's Supper, right? The Lord's Supper is the New Testament sacrament of fellowship, of communion. What's the Old Testament sacrament of fellowship and communion? It's also a meal. Passover. Passover. How do we know that they're linked? Because Jesus does it for us. They're sitting down for Passover, and Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new meal. This is my meal. This is my body. This is my blood, right? So notice the parallels, right? Um, So this leads to the basic question again. If circumcision in the Old Testament is a spiritual sign, why were children circumcised? This is the question you should be asking yourself. People always focus on baptism. Why should we do that? But if you have a problem with children being baptized, you have a problem with children being circumcised. You must have a problem how can children be circumcised when they don't have faith? Why? And the answer is the faith of the parents count for their child. That's the answer. And because in the Bible you are not an individual you are members of a family. And this is very difficult to, for us to understand because we live in an individualistic culture. You know what's a really good example of individualistic culture? I was just thinking about it. A long time ago how did people used to dance? they used to dance either like a ballroom dance that was some sort of scripted move with a partner or you do square dancing or line dancing. You do it with people. How do people dance now? (laughs) No rules. You don't even need somebody. (laughs) You can just do it by yourself. That's individualism. So this culture of individualism is profoundly influencing us. Everyone's an individual. Everyone's doing it on their own. You know, what my parents did doesn't matter to me. And what I do doesn't matter to my parents, but that's simply not true in the Bible. The Bible culture is a communal culture, and so your fate as a child lies with your parents. What your parent does impacts you, influences you, decides for you. And so where do you see that? You see that all over the Bible. Like I said, you, you cannot understand this this, this principle if you, if, if, I mean, if you don't believe this principle, you can't understand the whole of the Bible. So let me just pull out two examples. Genesis seven one. Where are we? Can I have, uh, can I Theo read that for
2: us? Uh, the Lord said to Noah, "Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation." Yeah, go into the
0: ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous. So Noah is righteous, but then God saves Noah and his family. And you might say, hold on, wait a minute, I dance by myself with no rules. So this passage makes no sense to me. Noah is righteous, you save Noah. Put Noah on that boat. Why are you saving his family? Do we know that Noah's sons are righteous? In fact, we know he, they are not. One of the sons, Ham, is not righteous. And yet the whole family, the children, the children's wives, they're all put on the boat, right? Because why? Because Noah is the representative head. That's how the Bible logic works, paradigm works. Let me do another one, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Um, can I have Christine read that for us?
2: You shall not bow down to... Oh, th- I'm sorry,
0: this is the second commandment, by the way, just to give you context.
2: You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those
0: who love me and keep my Right. Now, modern people really feel squeamish and uncomfortable with this passage. discomforted. Why? Because it says, why should the sins of the father affect his children and then his children's children? And again, in individualistic culture, this passage seems very unfair. Right? That just because my dad committed some sin and iniquity, why should it impact me, impose that on me? And why should it even go down to the next generation and then the next generation? And then the answer, the answer is in the Bible, you are not isolated from your family. What happens to you happens to your children. And I actually think this is a, a much more realistic model. If your dad, let's say you're a little kid, and your dad commits a crime, he goes to jail. Are you disconnected from dad? No. It's gonna affect you for the rest of your life. So this logic of a communal logic that you, that as a child, you go along with your parent. Like what your parent does, (coughs) that happens to you You too. That's the principle of the Bible. And that's how you understand infant baptism. Um,
1: Does that stop at judgment? (coughs) What do you mean? Yeah, Elaborate. When you ultimately have to give an account at the end, is that, do you give an account for your own faith or your own actions? Or do your, can your parents' faith Help you get into heaven, basically.
0: Um, we were going we're gonna. I was just, just about to address that, but yeah. I think um, to some degree, that question, like, wouldn't make sense too much to someone in the ancient world. Like, if your father yeah. believes the gospel, as a child, you would naturally say, "I too believe the gospel." And it, it's very difficult for us as modern people to understand this. But they didn't, the ancient the world didn't have this conception that you could independently think for yourself apart from your family.
1: But you gave examples like him.
0: Yeah.
1: Where people...
0: They break off. Right. This is true. So this is the next question I was going to answer. Does this mean simply because I'm a Christian, my children are automatically saved? And what's the answer, right? Just because they're circumcised, are they saved? Just like in baptism, no. Because baptism doesn't save you. Circumcision doesn't save you. These signs are useless, meaningless, unless it's united by faith. So unless the child believes the gospel on his own, as you say, um, they're baptized, then people naturally ask this question, okay? So if that's true, right, that baptism is a meaningless sign unless united by faith, why don't we wait? I hear this all the time. Why don't we wait until the children have faith? And then we baptize them, and then we can, first of all, A, make sure, and it'll be more meaningful. My answer to that uh, uh, question or objection is this. Number one, how do you know when they believe? When does that happen? And the assumption behind infant baptism is that you will never be able to tell. That from the earliest moment of their infancy, you're going to be telling them about the gospel. You're going to raise them as a Christian. And so the transition from childhood to adulthood would be seamless faith. And it doesn't mean that, you know, oh, they believe as much as they will ever believe at age five. It means that their faith at age five is tiny or non-existent, but it grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And there's never a break. And the only break is if the child says, no, I don't believe the gospel, and he breaks off. But it isn't like this conversion from pagan to believer. Does that make sense? Um, and and so baptism is extremely beneficial to children because it does two things. Number one, it tells them, children, that they're in the church, right? because baptism is a sign of belonging to the people of God. So we tell children, you, you belong in the church, this is your church family. And then number two, we can tell children God loves you. Okay? Um... <clears throat> Remember that baptism is a seal. What does seal mean? I gave you that example, right? It's, imagine a parent walking with his child. The parent says, I love you. But then the parent picks up the child and hugs the child. That's a seal. So that's what baptism does. And you can point back to the baptism. God loves you. God has promised he will surely save you. And so from the earliest memories, you can tell the child, you are God's child. Christ died for you. His blood covers over you. You don't tell the child. I once heard... Um, um, it was Mark Driscoll uh, but Mark Driscoll I mean Mark Driscoll is going through a lot of drama so it's kind of a bad <laughs> example but, but, um, but I respect Mark Driscoll you know, for, for, for other things but um, Mark Driscoll once said you know, he told his children you know, you're, a, you're a little pagan sinner and then you need to believe the gospel because you're going to hell and then child says oh my gosh I, I need to believe the gospel and, and then Mark just is like high-fiving his other children yes we got a convert I think that's really weird and un- 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 unnatural Right? The better way to say is, is not to tell, like I'm not going to tell little Judah, you're a pagan. You're outside the church. You're, you're an uncircumcised Philistine. I'm going to tell Judah from his earliest memories, you're a child of God. You belong in the church. Jesus is your Savior. So that's why we apply it from the beginning because we're telling the child there's never going to be a break. There's never going to be a crossover point. So I don't know if that answers your question. So eventually if Judah stands before God God's not going to say, oh, your daddy believes the gospel you're in. God's going to say, you believe the gospel, but you believe the gospel all along because your daddy was a Christian. He raised you in the church. He told you the gospel all along. I don't know if that makes sense, or any follow-up questions or comments on that issue? All right. So... Um, So, then the next question is, okay, well, let's focus on the New Testament. So, we've been focusing only on the Old Testament. Do we see this principle of infant baptism in the New Testament? And before I answer the question, again, it goes to logic, right? I mean, it goes to assumptions. So, let me just... if you believe in basic continuity, right? So, if you believe that the New Testament and the Old Testament has this basic uh, connection, right? Then, okay, so if continuity... Why did I get this pen? There's another one. I'll hear this. So, if continuity, then the burden of proof has to fall on those who are against infant baptism, and there has to be an explicit command not to baptize your babies. Okay? However, if you assume this discontinuity... And then, similarly, the burden of proof <coughs> has to be on the yes infant baptism group, and there has to be an explicit command to baptize your babies. Does that make sense? So, it all depends then, well, let let me put it this way. Is there an explicit command to baptize your babies in the New Testament? No. Is there an explicit command not to baptize your babies? No. So, the Bible doesn't tell us no explicit commands, and therefore, it all depends on your prior assumption. A lot of people say, I don't see any explicit command to baptize the babies, therefore no infant baptism. And I always want to tell them, well then you're just assuming discontinuity. P- please prove to me discontinuity the, between the Old and New Testament. You can't. Because there is, it is continuous if you look throughout the whole Bible, right? So, that's the that's, So this is the argument. There is no explicit command either way, and therefore we have to depend on the assumptions, the paradigm. Okay? it's a very subtle argument it took me forever to get it okay um, so is there an ex- explicit command there is none but as close to as you'll ever get it's Acts chapter 2 Okay. so I used to, I used to sit in Presbyterian churches and the minister would read this verse as the prelude to the infant baptism and I will be like what the heck how does that work but it works, okay, if you understand the paradigm. So Ezra, can you... Uh, let me actually read it, because it's, it's, it's very important. Um, and Peter said to them, this is Pentecost, right? Repent and be baptized. So he's talking about baptism, right? He's talking to people who are, who are believing in Jesus, and he says, receive the sign and seal of belief in Jesus, salvation in Jesus, which, which is baptism, right? Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen, verse 39... For the promise is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so notice that Peter connects baptism and children right there. He connects it. And of course, our Baptist friends, their response is, well, that's a bit of a stretch. Uh, Peter's talking about uh, children who in the future will believe the gospel. That's who the promise applies to. I think that's a little bit of a torture argument. But if you say that, you're completely missing the illusion that Peter is making. Because what is the illusion that Peter is making? What is this promise that he's talking about? The promise is for you and your children and those who are far off. It is the Abrahamic promise. An Abrahamic promise applied to three classes of people. You, children, your children, and what? Those who are far off, meaning foreigners, right? Gentiles. Okay, where do we see that? We see that in the Old Testament, right? So Genesis 17, it's not printed for you, but let me just read it for you. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me, listen, and you, and your offspring after you, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or, listen, bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. So, the Abrahamic promise applies to you, Abraham, to your children, and to people that you buy, slaves, from foreigners who are not believers, but now they're under your household. This paradigm always applies. The head of the household, the whole household, the promise applies to, right? Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. So Peter says, be baptized for the promise that was given to Abraham belongs to you and your children and those who are far off. That's the illusion. And therefore, what is is Peter saying? This is as close to a proof text as you're going to get. Baptize your children. This if this if this um, verse is very unpersuasive to you, it's because you have to accept this. Let's go on.
1: So, so, what about the foreigners? Do we baptize those as well?
0: The foreigners are the Gentiles,
1: so yes. But I mean, in our household, like say, someone was working in your household, or, like, say, an au pair, or... Right, right, right. Is there a, is there a modern-day equivalent? Yeah, so...
0: Um, we don't have that kind of cultural
3: relation. Did you want to say something? Oh, well, yeah, I was going to say that um, if you adopt a child, you baptize them. Sure. Um, and I think the, the reason why I make that example is because these days... Um, as you had pointed out earlier, the the individualism so permeates our culture that when someone works for us, they work with a contract, essentially, whereas um, a a slave, you know, the expectation was that, right, you lived and you died in that house. And so I think if we come up with something in which there's a foreigner, in which there's that level of permanence to it, then yes, I, I do think the baptism applies, and that's why we're very okay with adopted children being baptized. Yeah, so
0: I I would agree with Tim. Um, in terms of like people who are under your employment, right? Um, like an au pair like who's living under your household. If you lived in the Old Testament, yeah. Because the, the au pair coming under your employment isn't just an e- economic contract. You would be a relational family. You would be joining your family.
2: She would be teaching. She or he would teach your
0: kids. That's right. And so, when you say you, as a household, say, "I am now. I believe in the Lord. I am a follower of Jesus Christ," your whole family would say, "I, we too believe in Jesus Christ because we're a family." If your old pair says, "I don't believe in Jesus," that's a really that's an insult in the old, in the in the ancient culture. That's she's basically saying, "I don't want to be part of your family. Your family believes in uh, a false Messiah." You know, so. That kind of culture no longer exists, obviously. So you know we don't do that. Um, but with respect, the the link between um, the parent and the child in the Old Testament is much stronger than the link between you and your, and then the foreigners. Like you, you see this principle carried forward in the New Testament, which we'll talk about. But you see this aspect of it fade because we don't have slavery, but we don't have that cultural relationship. I don't know if that satisfies you. That's a very good question, Jeff. You're so logical.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, I'm just trying to figure out why baptism applies to children and not adults like why that relationship because oh okay right, true, because, right? Because,
0: so for the child the child doesn't believe in either way mm-hmm. the child is to some degree a blank slate
1: right so one, one would think that in the New Testament passages there were adults being baptized without faith
0: no. No, 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 no. Household.
1: No, 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 no. So adults they, believe they just Because they accept the faith based on the decision of the head of the household. That's right. That, that, that is weird to us. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, if your boss says, I'm
0: a Muslim now, and then everyone's company says, we're with you. We believe in Islam, too. You'd be like, that's so weird. But that's very much the ancient culture. And I think what that tells us is that faith is very sociological. You're not this individual, just believing on your own. You believe in a community with your friends. So this is why in the early church, um, someone in the tr- in a family would believe the gospel, and the the, the, go- the the Christian faith would spread through the whole family. They would all believe together. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But but um, uh, John says, for example, John chapter one, right? When he, he says that um, it's not the will of a husband, right? So simply because you're Head of the household believes, and you're an adult. It requires your assent. It requires your belief. Yes.
3: Is that also why the righteousness of the entire nation of Israel rested upon the righteousness of the king? Of course. So this this is this is the paradigm.
0: I would also say this is how salvation works. Romans chapter five, right? Because the the new Adam, Jesus Christ, His one act of righteousness, the righteousness flows to all of us. This is, by the way, if you have a problem with this, you have a problem with the gospel. Because this is. is, I'm sorry sorry to put it in that stark terms. But this is how it works. This is the paradigm of the gospel, right? It's not what you yourself, it's what your parent does, your federal head. Okay? Um, Let's go on. So, oh, so so this is as much of a proof text as you get. Do we see um, any evidence of infant baptism or uh, uh, of, of children? belonging, the promise belonging to children, there's circumstantial evidence. And that means there isn't any slam dunk proof text. But if you're persuaded of this, the circumstantial evidence will seem pretty persuasive. Otherwise, it won't. So, take it with that. Alright, so, um, so if children belong inside the church, so you, you have to go back and remember the class from last week, baptism is the sign of how you enter the church right? Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians, you're baptized into one body, right? So baptism is how you enter the church. So if children are inside the church, children, if they belong inside the church, they should receive baptism, okay? So, for example, Ephesians 6.1, let me just read the first verse. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Paul is giving instructions to children on the Christian life. And who are these children? These are the children of believers inside the church, and notice that if you look in Ephesians at the very beginning he says to the saints at Ephesus so he's a, he's addressing he's addressing the church and notice in his instructions in the church he addresses children in the church right and and he instructs the parents how to raise their children he says right raise them up in the discipline and <coughs> the fear of the lord and so basically children are not little pagans but they're little christians right Otherwise, that verse doesn't make very much sense. Why would you address little pagans? Because Paul never addresses pagans. He doesn't say, you know, all you citizens of Ephesus, you know, here are some moral laws. He's only addressing the church, right? Mark chapter 10. Let me read it for you. And they were bringing children to him, Jesus, that he might touch them. So they're bringing children, right? And the disciples rebuked them because the disciples were Baptists. No. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Verse (laughs) 14. Verse 14, But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, listen, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So here we see Jesus specifically welcoming, embracing children. He doesn't say, uh, 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 I need to know if you believe in me, if you have faith in me presumably that some of the children that were brought to him were infants, little babies. And and Jesus doesn't say, well, we don't know, we're going to have to wait. Because the parents believe, he accepts the, the faith of the... I mean, he accepts the child because children belong inside the church and he embraces them. And therefore, we as the church should not be stingier than Jesus in his embracing love, right? Any questions for there? The two circumstantial evidences... Alright, right, let me go on. Um, Do we see, so so here's some more circumstantial evidences. This is as close as you're going to get, household baptisms. All right, so there are five household baptisms. Uh, Here's one, Acts 16. This is the story of Lydia. This is in the uh, city of Philippi. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who is a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, verse 15, and after she was baptized, listen, and her household as well. She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come to my house and say, and she prevailed upon us. So, Lydia believes the gospel, and her entire household is baptized. And again, this seems strange to us, because we're individualists, but Lydia was the head of the household, and she represents the children in her household, and therefore, um, the children most surely were baptized. And a lot of people say, well, it doesn't specifically say children, and that is an unreasonable request, because it wouldn't have said, and baby Puglius was also baptized, right? <laughs> you just wouldn't do that, because <laughs> it wouldn't make any sense to, to, uh, to do that. Um, Oh, I just realized I skipped the whole section. All right, so I'm going to go back to it. Um, And the other thing is this word household. is the the Greek word oikos. Okay? That means family. That means household. It always and for always forever, it always includes children. It just doesn't make any sense. And so you might say, okay, and this is what a lot of times our Baptist friends will say, okay, Lydia, her, her whole household was baptized, but she didn't have any children. That's why baptism was applied to the whole family but notice there are five household baptisms Cornelius the Philippian jailer Crispus and Stephanus. all five households had no children it doesn't make any sense five households were baptized why would it say that because this this paradigm works and here i want to go back to this point that i was making i wanted to make earlier look if this is very important if no children If that's the rule, okay? This happens sometimes, meaning there's a break. Let me give you some examples circumcision, right? In general. In the Old Testament, you had to be circumcised, but in the New Testament, do you have to be circumcised? No, right? Now, did the people say, oh, of course. No. There was a raging controversy. People were upset. People were angry. You know why? Because everyone believed in basic continuity. And so if there's a break, there's a controversy. What do you mean we don't have to be circumcised? How can you say this? You don't believe in the Old Testament then. You don't believe in the promises of God. Here's another one. Uh, the clean laws, right? There's, there's clean laws. Food clean laws, right? Do we have to restrict ourselves to kosher uh, clean laws in the church? No. But the Jews did. And when, when Paul and Peter and everyone said, you don't have to do it anymore, was there a controversy? Absolutely. Everyone, what do you mean? We don't have to eat. We can eat pork and blood and that's gross and, and, and seafood and everything, right? So there's a controversy. So if there's going to be a break, where is the controversy? That's the question. And so this is an argument from Silence. And arguments from silence are kind of dicey. It kind of depends on how strong it is. I think it's very strong. There is no controversy.
2: Yeah. A uh, quick question though, but in the Old Testament, wasn't it that you know there was no explicit atonement? So in that sense, that could be argument for you know circumcision being an um, ethnic marker because there wasn't. You know, it was pretty clear that um, atonement there was like from the blood of animals, like the blood of you know, bulls and animals. But in the New Testament. There is a very explicit cost in terms of entry to the church, you know, which is you know the cross and Jesus' sacrifice. So I mean, it seems like in the Old Testament, if you think about entry, like there is no explicit cost. But then in the New Testament, I mean, isn't the Bible clear that you know entry into the church that's pretty serious in terms of you know accepting cost and accepting.
0: What, you're saying there's no cost to enter Israel.
2: Well, in the Old Testament, you know, the atonement was just like through the blood of animals, right? In mm-hmm. the New Testament, it's sort of there's like a very clear, explicit cost. So, like, do you see that? Um, do you still see the continuity? I guess there.
0: No, because okay. So here's the here's yeah. the principle: everything continues unless yeah. there's an explicit command to discontinue. Okay. And Paul, Peter, Jesus—they explicitly annul many things. All the clean laws, all the ceremonial laws, these are broken. But they never break this rule. They never mention it. So that's the point. Because they never mention this rule, that children, it's not that children need to be circumcised. I mean, that seems relatively small. It's this basic principle that children are inside the church, that children belong in the people of God. They're not little pagans, but they belong in. That principle was never, never annulled or or canceled if it was it would have been enormously controversial because you know what would have happened little Jewish families would say I believe in Messiah Jesus so they would come they would be baptized and they would bring their little children with them to be baptized and if Paul or Peter says I'm sorry we can't baptize your little baby because they don't have faith the Jewish family would be like holy smokes what do you, well they would say holy smokes but they would say what do you mean are you what, what is this this is outrageous and then they would have to have a whole conference, they would have the letters, and Paul would be arguing and explaining. It's completely silent. There is no controversy. You know why? Because when the Jewish family brought their little baby, the babies were baptized,
3: for sure. Yes? Uh, I, I just wanted to make a, a, a comment about the, the controversies, which yeah. is that um, entire books are written about explaining why um, circumcision is no longer done, all right? Like Paul spends all of Philippians basically talking about true circumcision. Romans talks about how uh, it was always faith that saved these people, Um, you know, and he goes back and he he shows you and and he talks about true circumcision. And so all these books talking about the new sign they always talk about how the old sign had pieces of this new sign in it. And so I'd actually go and, and challenge your, your statement that the cost of entry was low in, in, in when, when the gospel was only known to Jews. Because Hebrews actually talks about how the blood of animals themselves were never their atonement. It was their obedience and their faith that... God told them to do it so they did it and their belief that saved them. So it's not like the Jewish people were saved because animals were killed yeah, on yeah. the altar. It's because they did what God asked them to do. Let me let me let me oh, go ahead.
2: I have a it's a different question. Yes, go ahead. Ask a
3: different question. Okay.
2: Can they both be right? Can both Baptist and Presbyterian people be right? Like it would be okay to baptize your, your baby and it would be okay to wait until their faith. Can they both
0: be right? <laughs> um, um, it's smiling. a it, it's a it's a relatively minor issue. I should have said that from the onset. All my passion and enthusiasm amazed it <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it's a very very minor issue, in my opinion. But
2: it's big to some people. It is big to some big people. To it's not the, big to me, honestly. To Baptist people yeah. It's huge. Like, it I mean, is huge. Yeah, to the Baptist, yeah. So baptism of a baby, yeah. really, like so so this
0: is this is the argument I was going to mention next, which is church history. There was this group called the Anabaptists. Anna just means redo it. They were called yeah. the rebaptizers. So they looked at everyone who baptized a baby and said, that was not legit. We have to baptize you again. Yeah. So this is a big issue for some people. It's not a big issue for me. I don't think it's a big issue in the Bible because it doesn't go to the core of salvation. You're not saved by your baptism. You're saved by Christ. Um, now, as a child, you belong in the church, and you should receive the sign of belonging but that issue is relatively minor. So the majority of our children in our church are not baptized, and that's fine. I'm, that's totally okay with me. If the majority of our church didn't believe the gospel, that would not be good. I would be, I would be, like, oh my goodness, I failed you as a pastor. But I don't feel like I failed you if, if, if you, if you don't baptize. But with respect to can they both be right? The answer is no. Uh, biblically, one has to be right, or they can both be wrong. Right? They can both be wrong. It could be something else, but um, only because because it's either yes or no, right? L- let me let me wrap up with this. The argument from church history this is not persuasive for a lot of people, but this is very persuasive to me. Um, maybe because I'm a Presbyterian, right? Presbyterians always respect our tradition, our forebears. But infant baptism was universally practiced in the early church. Um, I think it's a very compelling argument because we know this. Let me just read you some quotes from, like, Origins. This, this is from the 3rd century. The church received from the apostles the tradition of giving baptism to infants. He says this is an apostolic tradition, universally practiced. Augustine, writing in the 4th century, the custom of mother churches ba- in baptizing infants is certainly not to be scorned, nor is it to be regarded in any way as superfluous, meaning extra, nor is it to be believed that, it, that its tradition is anything except apostolic. So, what you have in the 3rd and 4th centuries, you have a flurry of documents. Why not earlier? Because they were running from the Roman... Roman government, they are hiding out, okay? But the 3rd and 4th century, when it was okay to be out in the open war, you have a flood of documents that talk about infant baptism. So if the Baptists are correct, that, which is the early apostolic church, said no children baptism, and then somewhere in the 3rd century, it switched. And when it switched, it switched universally, because it was universally practiced in the early church. How did that switch happen? How do you explain the switch? And if there was a switch, where is the controversy? Where is the fight? The early church loved to fight. We have documents and documents of them fighting. Why didn't they fight over this issue? Nobody didn't baptize their children except until the 16th century with the Anabaptists during the Reformation. So I think that's a huge argument in favor of infant baptism. Because why? How did the church get it wrong for 16 centuries until the Anabaptist finally figured it out? So that's my final uh, point. Any questions or comments? Or yes,
2: just. Um What uh, for IBC when the kids like come of age, like that are baptized, yeah? That come of age, like oh, you know, I actually believe this stuff. Yeah. What's their Because like, right now they don't take communion. They don't.
0: Yeah. So in order to take communion, they would go through confirmation. So they would stand in front of everyone and they would answer the same questions that we would ask all people who join the church, which is, do you believe the gospel for yourself on your own? But we wouldn't apply the sign of baptism because they were always in the church. And, and what we're saying to those children is, oh, you're not converting at age 12 or age 14. You were always God's child. And you grow up and grow up into your faith until finally you're ready to stand on your own. Does that answer your question?
2: Yes. So there's something called confirmation. Okay, so
1: that's something that will happen eventually. Exactly. <laughs> we haven't crossed that. We <laughs> our kids <get> older. <laughs> uh, quick question, quick answer. I think Tim touched on this a little bit,
3: but if, if we hold the assumption of the, the framework of basic continuu- continuity, yeah. then pre-Christ and post-Christ,
0: the modes of salvation were different? No. No? Same. They're the same? Yes. Okay. One gospel, one Christ. So, one pre- so pre-Christ, it wasn't like...
2: Oh, you just got to do the thing the ceremonial parts
0: of the law then oh, no 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 always you believe you'll always have to believe the gospel the gospel uh, was the promise of the savior in the Old Testament and in the New Testament the, the gospel is Jesus is the savior
3: but it's the same gospel it's, it's Hebrews, it, I read it very slowly with a group of people and there was one part of Hebrews that I had to read five times I couldn't believe what it said but um, let me
0: just final, any, any last questions alright, let me close for us, thank you for your patience, uh, Heavenly Father um, this is most certainly not a core issue of Christianity and the gospel and so uh, it's an important issue it's a biblical issue Um, And so we attend to it and look to it um, wanting to understand the Bible. uh, But Lord, in the end, uh, we know that uh, our salvation is in Christ. Um, And so can we extend charity and kindness and a spirit of of openness to our fellow Christian friends, whether you're Baptist or Presbyterian. We pray this for for this kind of heart. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, class.